I think one of the best ways to evaluate a podcasting agency is if they're actually doing the things they're saying they're recommending to you. You are now listening to episode 111 of the People of Digital Marketing podcast with your host, Kenny Soto. On this episode of the podcast, I have B2B podcasting expert, Dan Sanchez. Who's Dan? Dan is director of audience growth for Sweetfish, a podcast agency for B2B brands. Equipped with his MBA and a career that has crossed design, technology, marketing, and education, Dan is ready to teach others how to grow their audience in a digital age. He contributes regularly to the B2B growth podcast, his LinkedIn feed, and his own blog at danchez.com. Dan's also an avid runner, yerba mate drinker, and resides in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife and three princesses. On this episode, we talk about why having a podcast for your B2B company is important. It helps you gain more clients, helps you network, helps you learn, create new content, repurpose content, and so much more. It's the Swiss army knife for your marketing team. Now, without further ado, let's tune in and learn how to create and use a podcast for your organization. Hi, Dan. How are you? Doing well, Kenny. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So as I do with all my other guests' interviews, the best way for us to get a sense of your expertise in the world of podcasting and B2B is to start off with a very setting the scene question, if you will, which would be, how did you get into digital marketing in the first place, Dan? Dude, <laughs> it's so many baby steps in, like so many other people, but essentially I was a graphic designer and I felt I even got into graphic design because I wanted to be an artist, right? I That was the only class I liked in high school. I'm like, I, I failed out of Spanish. They put me in art class and I fell in love with that mediums. I just liked making stuff. And I find a lot, of, a lot of other marketers, especially the ones on the more creative side, was like, we just liked making stuff. We liked making painting, drawing, sculpting stuff. I even loved jewelry making. I even consider that as a field, but I loved making. And then when I discovered graphic design and how you could be persuasive through what you were making. It wasn't just there to be beautiful or to like set an aesthetic, a, a, a tone. You, you could use it to communicate things and to persuade people. And I liked that part of it. So I got into graphic design. I'm like, I'm going to be the best designer there ever was, you know, you know, when you're like 20 and idealistic and you're trying to be the best. And then, I don't know, I started designing social media at the time. It was like 2010 and Facebook was just freaking taking off and everybody had Facebook pages and they all needed profile pictures, logos, and like cover photos and content for their Facebook page. So I'm like, okay, I'll design this for you. And I started getting into social media marketing and people like, I need a website. So I figured out how to code, you know, how to set up WordPress. And then of course to do WordPress, well, you kind of had to slowly learn how to code. So you end up learning HTML and you end up learning CSS. And then people, they just, the requests kept coming. And I just felt like this obligated, like one, I was like the young person, the 20 something year old on a marketing team. And they'd be like, can someone figure out email? The guy who did email left. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, I guess I do websites, email is similar. And then you're figuring out lists and, you know, making the mistake every young email marketer makes of sending it too early when it's before it's done. You're like, no, and it leaves. And you're like, have to go to your boss and be like, hey, I just emailed 10,000 people. Uh, Rebecca is awesome. It was supposed to be a joke, but Rebecca's the intern. <laughs> oh man. I, then I got into text message marketing because that was similar and that person left. I, you just ended up doing, I ended up doing all the digital stuff because all the older marketers didn't want to. Lo and behold, that became the thing. And now digital marketing is just kind of 
well, marketing. <laughs> but that was a because I was the only one eager enough to learn and read all the the manuals and read books and find forums to figure out how to do all that stuff. I ended up be developing a skill with digital. Um, and I went from platform to platform and learned how to run Google ads was a big one for me and uh, Facebook ads got really heavy into that. And that became huge, like PPC, like sending paid traffic, targeted paid traffic to a landing page with a good call to action. And then a, a nurture sequence of emails. When I figured that out in like 2012, I was like, this is amazing. And because you could split test the heck out of it. And now all of a sudden you can be creative and actually have real data tell you, Hey, this worked better than this. So who knew that design that I thought was really sick, like didn't work. <laughs> they liked the uglier one. Oh, you know, and that's through that process, I became way less romantic about, um, graphic design and the things that designers get romantic about, about how good something looks. Cause I started to find out, Oh, you know what? Sometimes the market doesn't freaking care how good your logo is. They want a freaking incredible offer and they need it explained in chunks in a way that their brain can handle it and gets them excited about it. Right. You give them little breadcrumbs to come along. And I started just becoming a marketer from a designer and a web designer. I cared less about how something looked though. I cared. I still care. You know, professionalism and visual communication is a thing and it should be taken seriously. Branding, you know, it's all plays into one thing, but I cared a lot less after, after that. And I honestly, I felt hard for marketing. I was like, I've been hard after marketing for over 10 years now and I, I'm still not done. Maybe like I'm starting to get into probably the next stage. If you start dig, digging deep enough into marketing, sometimes you find out that it's not the marketing that's the problem. You keep digging deeper. Why aren't people buying? Why aren't people buying? You're like, oh, shoot. It's because the product sucks. Or the service. Well, whose fault is that? Kind of the marketers, but kind of not. You know, you start to find out, oh, shoot, like we have this awesome product. The market doesn't want it. <laughs> well, dang, we don't have, we never had a product market fit. So what's now? But now I'm not even into marketing questions anymore. I'm into entrepreneurial questions now. It's a whole, like if you go deep enough into the marketing rabbit hole, you'll pop out the other side in entrepreneur land real fast. So now I find myself wrestling with like Alex Hermazzi's like my man. Like if, I don't know if you've discovered him on YouTube or other social channels. Yeah, but he's fantastic. You're like, man, this guy, he's a fantastic marketer, but really he's an entrepreneur at heart that knows how to talk and break down how to, how to discern a market and what they want. How did the off, how did the, develop and deliver a grand slam offer that people are willing to pay a lot for. That's the kind of stuff that's got me excited now. So I find myself starting to tiptoe into entrepreneurialism. Um, but I am, I love marketing. It's a fantastic game. It never, it never gets boring because as soon as you figure it out, it dies. And then you have to go and learn how to do it again in a different platform in a different way, but the principles stay the same. And I think those, you know, you still get better and better at it. If, if there's life were an RPG, you know, you level up along the way. So it's good. So that's the origin story, I guess. <laughs> that's a great origin story. And it brings about a question I've asked before but the answer is always different. So I ask you, do you think that at the starting point, level one, if you will, if we're taking the RPG route, do you think that a generalist approach is recommended or should you find a specialty and dive into that as soon as possible? Gosh, that's a good question. I definitely went the general generalist route, but I didn't just do the generalist route. I feel like people are generalist, but they're like really shallow on all the topics. 
where I like read every single book I could find on, like when I went deep into Facebook ads, I read every book I could find. I read all the blogs. I listened to all the podcasts. And there's a period of like a year and a half where I didn't nothing but drink Facebook ad, the Facebook ad Kool-Aid, man. And it's that way for every topic. Like when I got into B2B, when I joined Sweetfish, I didn't know what account-based marketing was. So I bought the 12 books that exist on the topic and I read them all. <laughs> I talked to all the experts. Luckily, it's one of the advantages of having a podcast. As you know, you figured it out. Like podcast podcasting secret sauce, man. You get to talk to all the experts and all the authors you ever wanted to. It's a whole nother degree of learning. So I was a generalist, but I was going pretty deep on all the different topics and actually learning about it early in the morning and in the evenings, and then actually practicing it in the, the daytime. The peep, So the, the generalist who's actually pretty good at a lot of different things can actually create more synergy across channel, um, but it's a lot harder to do. The one, the one major problem I found with it's actually find it's way easier to get the results you want as a generalist. The one problem with the generalist route that I've run into is that it's hard to become known for something. It's so much harder to brand yourself around. I'm the freaking this guy. And that's, I've jumped, I've tried to reposition my personal brand probably like five times in the last seven years. <laughs> it's so hard. I was going to be the nonprofit marketer and then the school marketer and then the B2B marketer and the audience growth guy. I don't know. I've tried so many different angles, honestly, but I'm so ADD. I love learning everything. Just like being obsessive about things. I don't know if I have a good answer to this, but there's definitely advantage to knowing every, knowing how to do it all well and how to piece it all together. I find that the internet marketing community is fantastic at this. They know how to write good copy. They know how to set up sequences. They know how to build websites. They might not do them all well, but they know how to get freaking results for and set up the whole funnel from targeting to fulfillment. Fan, like, I love that community. Their stuff looks a little janky sometimes because they need to hire a graphic designer, but it's still good. And they suck at branding, but you know, you got, you got to have some weak points somewhere. Absolutely. And the, but the people that end up getting the farthest as far as building a following and a, and a brand online are usually the specialists because people know why to follow them. So that's the advantage of that side, right? If you want to be an entrepreneur, better to be a generalist. If you want to become a thought leader in a certain space with your brand and become the highest paid person in a company, probably better to be the specialist. All I mean, when I and when I say specialist, I mean like that classic T-shaped marketer where you have a broad base and go really deep on one subject. Like that person's going to get the that, that person's going to have the highest paid salary and has going to achieve like get more following on social media, being known for that one thing than trying to be everything to everybody. So that's my nuanced answer on that question. To get more context on you, Dan, can you tell us what Sweetfish is and what you do for them? Absolutely. Sweetfish is a B2B podcast agency. And we help and essentially generate revenue for all these B2B companies through their podcast. They hire us, we help them launch and run their podcast. Um, I'm the director of audience growth, though I've had, it's a, it's a startup, a larger startup. I mean, we're probably doing 5 million this year and I've worn lots of hats. I've been the director of marketing. I've been in charge of CX for a short bit, actually managing all the clients and producers. I've been a full-time evangelist, which is kind of where I'm at now. Um, I'm pretty much a full-time evangelist because I'm the one person on the team who's actually done a lot of marketing in my background. <laughs> and since we're marketing the marketers, it helps to be a marketer. I know how to talk to them. 20, 20% of my time is used to coach clients and how to improve their podcast, how to map it to their strategy and how to get the most out of their podcast to, you know, grow, grow revenue for their teams. 
So that's kind of what I do now. But as an evangelist, I'm creating lots of content. I'm big on LinkedIn where I'm spending a lot of time engaging with people and posting content for my own personal brand on behalf of Sweetfish. So I've probably generated about a million dollars worth of revenue for Sweetfish just for my own LinkedIn stuff, which is cool. Um, but at the same time, it's sweet that Sweetfish lets me do it because I get to take it with me if I'm like, if my net, whatever my next stage in my journey is from Sweetfish, and I'm pretty happy at Sweetfish. But I, that's a personal brand I get to take with me. But it's also been good for Sweetfish. Um, now I'm actually working on a lot of blogs and podcasts. Yeah. So then my next six months are going to be <laughs> not writing blogs, but essentially outlining and creating videos for blogs to writers to write to because I have a hypothesis that the next wave of SEO is going to be actual expertise in the blogs versus just hiring writers to write about and regurgitating what they're reading online, which is why blog has become very commodity content. It's all the same stuff. You go to Google, best dates for married couple in Nashville. It's the same crap over and over again because no one who's actually been on dates in Nashville has written the content, right? It's all people who just regurgitate each other and just put the easy ideas. Same thing for every niche. How to run a marathon. And the first tip is drink freaking water. You're like, oh my gosh, drink water? <laughs> like, a, duh, how much water? Like, tell me something from somebody who's actually run a marathon. This person hasn't run one. So I'm going to be focusing a lot on trying to create that content. And for B2B growth, our show, it's going to be a platform. Anyway, I could go on about that, but that's what I do. <laughs> no, that that's a thesis that I want to I wanna tap into because it's something that I've been thinking as a SEO specialist myself, it's really thinking not just of SEO and written content, but content overall, really diving into the fact that there's too much out there already, right? If someone has taken their time and decided to read something versus listen or watch it on YouTube, TikTok, et cetera, then you've already surpassed a huge barrier of entry. You shouldn't waste that time that you've been granted from the user and have a how-to blah, blah, blah article because then they're going to bounce right away. Yeah, I think they did better than what was there before, which were very short. Like 10 years ago, the web was just full of like 200 to 300 word blogs. They're very short answers that hardly even covered the subject. Now, if I Google what is content marketing, I'm going to find HubSpot who's written a freaking 3,000 word article and it's very thorough coverage of content marketing. But it probably wasn't written by somebody who understands all the nuances of content marketing. I mean, maybe maybe in that case they do because it's probably a blogger who is literally doing content marketing by writing the blog post. But in most examples, it's like these articles are being written for SEO who haven't actually done the thing. And I think there's so many places where I'm searching and I'm like, this this has the answer, but it's not good enough. So you end up going to YouTube where you can verify the person's actually done the thing. Like simple, like lawnmowers. Like you're looking for the best lawnmowers for your type of grass. The blog article, you can tell someone hasn't actually tried it or done it for your type of grass. They're just giving generic advice. But the YouTuber, you can verify because they're freaking sanding on the lawn and it looks like your lawn. And they're like, yep. here's my five mowers that I've tried. And they have the five freaking mowers. You're like, okay, then they probably have a pretty good idea because they actually, I can tell they've done it all. I think the same thing just needs to happen for blogs. And some people still want to read rather than watch or listen. That's, that's not going to go away. Some people just want to glance over it. So there's a huge opportunity for new articles to be written to one up the ones that were done, which were good and better than what was before. But there's a whole new opportunity for helpfulness in the content writing. I think it could be done. I'm going to be doing it in with video. Like I'm going to record a three to five minute video of just talking 
And then that'll be the Kickstarter for the writer who's then going to write. I essentially give them the outline and the video, and then they fill in some spots. But I I do a lot of outlining to make sure they stay on track, and I'll be the expert giving the guidance on the topics. That's So that's my game plan. That makes total sense. Now, shifting to podcasting for B2B businesses, I'm assuming it's appropriate, and correct me if I'm wrong, for any B2B business to do a podcast. The challenge is knowing when is the right stage of the company to actually introduce that idea, correct? No, I would I would start it from day one. A podcast is like a Swiss army knife and it can accomplish so many different objectives. I'm actually in the process of starting my own company and it'll be a while before it gets off the ground and may become my full-time gig, but I'm just starting it and I won't say what about what niche it is. I'll save that for some, someone another time. But the first thing I'm doing is starting a podcast. And it's a B2B company. I'm selling to other businesses. But honestly, even though I know the industry really well, I still have so much to learn. So like good entrepreneurs spend the most time with customers, talking to them, like getting to know what what are they thinking? What are they what what do they think at night? What are they what are they hearing? What are they seeing? What are they talking about? What keeps them up at night? What what's their wins they've had recently? What are things that are struggling with? What are they hoping for in the future for their companies? you don't know until you go and actually talk to them. And a lot of marketers talk about talking to customers, but very few do. A podcast makes it easy for you to make up a podcast that's all about your customers' favorite things. Just make it, just call it, you can name it after their job title. If you're going after um, graphic designers in, um, I don't know, churches, right? Or large churches that hire graphic designers and creative directors or whatever. And that's your niche. You're going to sell software to them. Well, go start the church creative director or the creative creative ministry or something like that. And then just interview them and talk to them. I guarantee you after 30, 40, 50 episodes, you're going to have a much better idea of who they are, what they're doing, what they're thinking about, and understand the trends between them all. So you can be much better. It's essentially doing what they call um, product marketing because you're getting to know your customers. And then you might even be like, hey, we're working on something. Do you think this would be helpful? And they can give you feedback, but you have to spend time with customers in this remote world, having them jump on for an interview. And it's also a double, double win. You get freaking good content out of it too. <laughs> and then you can repurpose that content. So it's like almost creating this marketing machine before you've even like launched. You could do it from the very beginning, from the first inception of, I think I want to get into this niche and understand it better. Let me start a podcast and start interviewing people because hardly anybody says no to being on a podcast. Until they're so famous and they're getting so many requests that they start to start saying no to something, most people say yes. So it's a really funny hack that you can do at the very beginning of launching. And then it carries all the way through because you never you never outgrow talking to customers. Um, in the B2B space, if you have a, a large ticket item like a, and it's a high ARR um, annual revenue you get from whatever they're paying you for, like you're offering consulting services at half a million a year, then a lot of that game is relational. But those people that have that kind of budget and that kind of decision-making power aren't easy to get a hold of. You can't, they're not going to give you 15 minutes for coffee, you know, but they'll probably give you a whole freaking hour to be on a podcast, which is just insane, insane, right? You want to talk to a venture capitalist and build a relationship with them? They won't give you five minutes, but they'll come and speak on your podcast. Funny hack. Um, that's what the founder of Sweetfish Media discovered early on with podcasting. He wrote a book about it called Content-Based Networking. Fantastic book on this process of 
using content collaboration like a podcast. You could do it with a YouTube channel or a blog too in order to build relationships with your ideal buyers. And that's why podcasting is such a great tool. Now, there's a lot of other things you can still do with podcasting, but those are some of my favorites. Research and building relationships with ideal buyers. So, And you can play it all the way through. I'm a big fan of learning from other people's mistakes. And I'm certain that through Sweetfish, you've seen clients who have already attempted creating a podcast and they're going to you because they're not hitting the mark. What are some common mistakes that you see B2B businesses make when they're first starting out creating a podcast? Gosh, the biggest mistake is they didn't start at all. <laughs> so many people talk about it. Um, I, I actually would rather see them start and make something bad than just not start because you could, honestly, you could just do it a little bit better every time. So what if you don't have a microphone? Like if you have a MacBook, the microphone's kind of like good enough most of the time in most situations or on your phone, freaking a free anchor account. You can record right there. Just push the button, talk, like grab your most frequently asked questions from your sales team and just answer one. Boom. Episode one. And then the titles, the answer to the question, <laughs> like it's the punchline, right? Bam. Easy, easy content that becomes good sales enablement content um, that people can listen to. You can use it for lots of different purposes. It's just so easy to get started, but very few people do. And of course, some companies are big enough that they have a certain brand image to maintain. So they don't want to launch like rough and dirty. They will have to start at a certain level. And that's when they hire companies like ours to start at that level. So they have great cover art and they have a thought through premise for their show and the host is ready and all that kind of stuff. So there's for sure that too. Um, but most common mistakes that I'm like, hey, these are the things you need to upgrade is usually doing more episodes. They're not doing it frequently enough. And then they're not usually not promoting it like in the easy ways. I went and researched like my uh, a coworker and I looked up 500 B2B SaaS companies, uh, services, software companies. Most of them didn't have podcasts, probably like I'd say about 30%. Of that 30%, half of them didn't even link to it on their website. I had to find it through Google. Like they didn't, like on their top, they have a dedicated section for resources. You're like, great. It's probably under resources, blogs, webinars, white papers. They must not have a podcast. Otherwise, th this would be where it lives. And then you Google it, so-and-so company podcast. Bam, there it is. You're like, you didn't even link it in your homepage, let alone feed it into your blog, put it on social. Like, no wonder why you you did the podcast and gave up on it. Like, you just, you never promoted it. <laughs> Honestly, a super common mistake. And it's amazing to me that they do it, but they do. And then probably the next most common mistake that I see is, as far as like the interview goes, is not getting to some really solid meat with the guests that they're having. Especially if you're talking to high level people, they tend to stay very ethereal. But what I what we find mo creates better content is getting into the very practical. So you can do that some ways with the host. Like, hey, if we're talking about content marketing and about how effective it is, you could ask. You can, as a host, you could just go over and ask them, like, oh, cool. So what's the number one? What's the most common thing you think people need to start doing with their content marketing, like this week? What is what's the most common thing everyone needs to start doing now? What do they need to stop doing that they're all doing? Or if you want to make it even a little bit more interesting, right? Because there's a lot of talking head podcasts out there. Another common question we'll use to try to find an interesting point of view from the guest is, what's a commonly held belief in your industry that you passionately disagree with? And that's a great way to pull out 
like a point of view that they have that's going to be unique, that's going to make for a better episode for you. So if you're always trying to think of the audience, while you're still building relationships with the guests, but if you're thinking about the audience and how to keep it interesting for them, that's something I I usually coach hosts through, is how to make it, how to bring out the unique per- perspectives of your guests and how to get them to say things that are very practical that they can take away and execute uh, that week. How should clients evaluate a podcasting agency? See, we did a long blog post on this a long time ago. I'm like trying to think of all the points we brought up into it. I think one of the best ways to evaluate a podcasting agency is if they're actually doing the things they're saying they're recommending to you. Like if they're saying do X, are they doing X? Do they have their own podcast? How big is that show? Is it a popular show? Like, are they doing the thing, which is a common agency thing. Most agencies are are starving bakers, right? They, they're feeding everybody but themselves. So it's kind of a good indicator if they're doing it themselves or at least attempting to do it. Like, not everybody's going to have a really big show. Ours is B2B growth. Our show is big. You know, it's had 4 million downloads and 2,000 episodes. But partly, part of that was just because we started way earlier and have been doing it for seven years. So it's a big show, you know. It gets 160K downloads a month. It's a lot. But it's also because it was early. Like being early to a platform is a big deal. You And in B2B, you don't even necessarily have to be nearly that big in order to have a big impact because 300 of the right people, one of those people, if they're, if, they're one, if one of those people has the ability to write a 50K check or a 500K check, that's kind of a big deal. Like you just don't need as many people in B2B. That's one of my favorite things about B2B versus B2C. It only takes one sale to make a big difference <laughs> or a few sales versus like selling pillows. You like, I sell a lot of pillows in order to make a big freaking difference. I feel bad for the guys at my pillow. <laughs> I'm like, they got to sell a lot of pillows to, and then keep selling them because the pillow is not even something you buy a lot. So it's like, ah, that would suck. I would hate that business. You got to convince new people to come and buy your one pillow. And then maybe 10 years later, they'd buy another one. Hopefully. When it comes to measuring impact, an impact can be revenue, but there's so many things outside of revenue that matter. How do you measure the impact of a podcast? The easiest way to measure an, the impact of a podcast is simply to ask, the, like the easiest way that anybody could like literally do this week. If you have a podcast and you have in a B2B space, you have some kind of like some kind of mechanism on your website that indicates that they're going to sales. They requested the free consultation. They booked a demo. Whatever that mechanism is, they requested sales literature of some kind or asked for the free quote. Whatever that is, if you just have an open field text that says, how did you hear about us? Do not give them options. Let them write it in. If your podcast is making a difference, they will say the podcast. Um, they'll probably say a couple of things. They usually do because it's usually a combination of channels. People are like, you remember the ones that have been impacted by, and they might be like, oh, I found you on LinkedIn and I listened to your podcast. That's, that's what they'll tell you as they're coming in to ask the boss buying questions. And then if you want to go the next step, how many of the people mentioned podcasts converted to revenue? And then you can map some revenue to it. It's probably the most quantitative way you could do it. But you have to take a more qualitative answer in doing it and not let like HubSpot's like or any of the CRM tools like reporting metrics tell you because they'll never HubSpot can't track that. Salesforce can't track that. None of them can track that because there's this gate called Apple, Google, and Spotify who don't give you that kind of information. Um actually they you, there is ways to get the information, but it's not as reliable. But there is ways to get the information that I found out recently. I was like, oh okay. 
there's some ad retargeting plays you can do with IP addresses and stuff that I found out. So, but only big players can even afford to play with that kind of stuff. So (laughs) when it comes to seven years of podcasting, what are some key takeaways that you learned about B2B growth from the B2B growth show? As someone who's a hosted, I mean, there's 2000 episodes on this podcast and I've done probably 200 of those. So I've done probably 10% of the episodes of B2B growth. So we've had many hosts on it. One of my biggest things that I've learned is the thing that we call the Oprah effect. Um, And you've probably found it. You've even mentioned it in your own thing. Like when you're the host of a show, people see you differently, which is really funny to me because people, you're just there asking questions, but people often walk away thinking like, oh, you're, you're really good at this. You're really knowledgeable. You're like, what the heck? I just asked questions. I didn't even share what I knew, (laughs) but they have this perspective, even the guests, but the audience has it even more. And if you think about it, Oprah's, we call it the Oprah effect because Oprah is the freaking master at this man. She's just a journalist, but she interviews all these awesome people. And over the course of decades, people are like, Oprah's amazing. So it's the Oprah effect. Like the effect, the impact of being a host of your own media channel has that effect on you and people's perceptions of you change in a good way. Um, in a very profitable way too, if you have something to sell them later, because it positions you as an expert on the thing that you're interviewing them about, even if you're not. But of course, you will be after enough interviews because you've talked to 100 or 200 experts in the field, practitioners, authors, thought leaders on it, right? So you will be. It's, it's a great way to learn. Um, the other thing about podcasts is I don't know about you, but like I'm definitely naturally an introverted man. Like, but I want to go and meet people. I want to build friends. Like I've read books like um, Never Eat Alone, which talks about the value of networking and how it's so good to know people. And we all know the same. Like, it's not about what you know, but who you know. And you're just like, oh, but how do I meet more new people and make them like me? Podcast. It's a secret. Freaking podcast. (laughs) It's the easiest thing because you you now have a uh, a mechanism to go and be like, hey, I'd like to talk to so-and-so. So now I can confidently just shoot them a DM and be like, Hey, I would love to talk to you on our podcast about this thing that you're good at. Interested? Sure. Now, all of a sudden, you're having an hour-long conversation with that person. You do that enough and have them back once or twice, and then you stay up up to date with them on social and even meet them in person. All of a sudden, you have so many more friends. You have a whole network of people that you actually like and care about, and they they know and like you because you've you've talked shop with them and have swapped some maybe some personal things too. I don't know. Um, it's just a fantastic way to build a network and build a, and be, have way more fun at work because a lot of meaning for me comes from the strength of the relationships I have. And even though I work remotely, I feel like I've never had more strong relationships with people that I'm working with regularly because of podcasting and so, and what I do with LinkedIn. So that was the the second thing. Yeah, I, I can attest to that because ever since starting this show, the goal was to learn. That was the goal. But one of the results that I found is I'll apply for a job and not only is the the conversion rate higher, I actually get to the first round interview, but the first round interview is much smoother because they're not asking me about my experience. The resume speaks for that, but at the same time, they've listened to at least one episode on my podcast. So it's more so just trying to figure out, do I understand the business, which is a whole other conversation. Oh, yeah. 
Dude, podcasting is the biggest freaking hack for getting the job, your dream job. Yes. So crazy how how much impact it has just by sitting there and talking to the whoever the hiring managers are. It doesn't even matter what industry it is. It could be tech, could be health, as long as it doesn't like, as long as you have the the right credentials, like in health and law or whatever, but yeah, or engineering. But other, if you don't need those, then it's just about who you know. And podcasting is the way in, man, because people build trust and they hire people they trust. And the way you build trust is by spending time with them like this. Exactly. Exactly. Dan, if you had access to the time machine and you can go back into the past about 10 years, knowing everything you know right now, how would you specifically accelerate the speed of your career? Dude, podcast, easy. (laughs) I've thought about this so many times. Like, look, I started with art and then went to the design and then web design. And I literally did every other freaking channel known to digital marketing. I went and tried to master all of them. I built massive, massive traffic on blogs with SEO. I have the I built some of the most crazy, weird email marketing automation funnels that you could find. Um, and they were good. I did landing page split testing and copywriting and f- like designed brochures and did some basic like did PR campaigns and crisis communication. Like I did all this stuff. And the podcasting was the last one I figured out. So pissed because I wish it was the first one I figured out because it's not, I don't know what it is, but it seems like it's going to be hard, but it's so much easier. It's like, it's a zoom, like it's zoom. You just record the zoom call. You don't even have to edit it at first. Just like download the recording, publish on anchor for freaking free. It would have been the hack of all hacks to the career. Like I would like, I'm pretty happy with where I'm at now and where I'm going, but man, I could be in totally different places because of this thing had totally different job opportunities because of it. I, that was the one thing I could go back and I could go back to my 20 year old self. It would have been like, start a podcast, figure it out. That's all I'm telling you, but no. (laughs) Oh, well, at least, at least I'm in the game now. (laughs) Yeah. That's all that matters. Dan, if anyone wanted to find you online, where can they go to say hi? Dude, LinkedIn. I'm all over LinkedIn. So linkedin.com slash IN slash digital marketing Dan. Connect with me. I love to hear from people. Or if you want to learn, find my other social sites or my kid's book on marketing, interestingly, or like all that stuff in my blogs, you can find me at danchez.com. Awesome. Thanks, Dan, for your time today. And thank you to a listener for listening to another episode of the People Digital Marketing Podcast. And if you haven't done so, please rate us on Apple and Spotify. And as always, I hope you have a great week. Bye. Thanks again for listening to episode 111 of the People Digital Marketing Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, definitely subscribe because next week we have Chad Reed on the podcast. Who's Chad? Chad is the VP of Marketing and Communications at Jotform a leading online form and productivity software company. On this episode that we'll have next week, we'll talk about whether you should hire an employee, freelancer, or vendor, depending on the role that your marketing team needs, the inflection points within a marketer's career, what skills a candidate should have when applying for a role, and so much more. Again, if you've listened to this point, thanks again, and I hope you have a great day. Bye. Thank you.